Hey everybody, this is Scotty. I uh, just wanted to drop a quick note before the show starts. Um, so we do have a guest host this week, and unfortunately with my somewhat limited technical skills, I did not catch that there's a pretty significant sound disparity between her microphone and mine in terms of the volume. I tried to fix it as much as I could, but it's still pretty noticeable, so just wanted to give you a heads up about that. Uh, she's going to be on the next episode as well, so I'll try and get that fixed before then. Anyway, thanks, and enjoy the show. We think we've heard of that before, stranger stories every day. Wonder what tomorrow's gonna bring. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing. Hello. Uh, well, welcome back, everybody, to A Weirdest Thing Podcast. I am your host, Scotty Milder. And just to remind everybody, uh, we do not have Amelia for the foreseeable future, although she did message me and let me know that she's hoping she's going to have some free time opening up here soon. So hopefully we'll be able to get her on before too long. But today, one thing I, I thought I'd like to do, just kind of take the opportunity while Amelia is away, is to just have a few like different people on, like different artists, writers, musicians, just to kind of talk in like a little bit more general terms about their work and their creativity and whatnot. So to that end, I want to introduce uh, today's guest host, uh, Danielle Robertson. Hello, everyone. So Danielle, I guess, well, tell us just a little bit about like how I know you <laughs> or how yes. like the Albuquerque people know you. <laughs> so I've known Scotty for oof, five or six years now. It's when yeah. I got involved with uh, Amelia's company, Duke City Repertory Theater here in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. And Scotty's kind of the one we go to when we need a DCRT super <laughs> friend, He's like our, our resident video editor. And uh, mm-hmm. through the work that we've done through that company together and through the parties and things on the periphery of those events, we've hung out and chatted and, and you know, developed a friendship. I got to pick Scotty up after he was uh, anesthesized. <laughs> yeah, just like <laughs> a couple, of weeks, a couple ago. weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like I was saying, normally uh, Amelia is my go-to for things like that. But you got the you, you got the uh, joy of my drugged-up ass in yes, the car. So. Y'all get to hear Scotty talk all of the time, but that was that was a treat for me. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean, you are a member of Duke City Rep. You are a member of Amelia's Theater Company. Yes. Now you're obviously an actor, and I've seen you do like a lot of dramatic acting as well. Mm-hmm. Like I saw you in Romeo and Juliet and Call of the Wild and stuff like that. But I tend to think of you more as a comedian. And I think it goes back to like the first time I ever saw you was during the Ugly Sweater Review, which mm-hmm. is DCRT. How would how would you describe Ugly so Sweater Review? So it's kind review? of uh, DCRT's Ugly Sweater Review. We classify it as an anti-holiday show. Uh, so where you can go out in the world and see your nutcrackers and your Christmas carols and all of the productions that kind of come with the holiday season, DCRT Mm -hmm. wanted an alternative to that. So if that wasn't your bag and uh, going to the theater in general was kind of a thing that you didn't want to do around that season, we wanted to pull you in with something a little bit different. Uh, Just so the people that wanted to have some naughty adult fun around the holidays, (laughs) instead of like kind of succumbing to the sugar plum aspect of the holiday, um, (laughs) there was something for them to do. And uh, we've now done it five years in a row for the holiday proper season. And then this past February, well, this past Valentine's Day, we had kind of a spinoff of that format. Yeah, it was like and, ugly sweater, but like 
for Valentine's rather than yeah, the, we called it Head Over Heels, and we did some rebranding. Yeah, <laughs> kind of make it fit a little bit more into that right um, that holiday. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so the ugly sweater review was we called it a naughty body holiday alternative to the yeah program. It's like a variety show. You had magic, and you had uh, a lot of burlesque, burlesque. like <laughs> like and boylesque, like lots of naked slash semi naked people. Yeah, I'd like um, the petition to start calling boylesque burlesque, but <laughs> uh, well, no, you know, no, you no. get me in there doing it. Okay, it cool. Definitely would be burlesque. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is not. By the way, I'm not putting it out there that I'm going to do that. No, like nobody okay. message me and be like, "Oh, Scotty for next year." No, no, it's okay. not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but along with the naked people and the magicians and stuff, you guys also do an improv yes. troupe. What do you, and what do you call? It's the naughty list, right? It's the naughty list. Yeah, and then. For for the holiday, uh, for when we did it for Valentine's Day and we rebranded, we called them the Thoughty List. <laughs> That's like right. A little asterisk to finding what a Thoughty person is, what that even means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I remember watching, so the first Ugly Sweater review is I think when I first met you. Oh, yeah. um and i remember i think i think that yeah it was probably 2017 oh no that's 2016 yeah. 2016 wow oh, yeah. yeah and you were if i'm not mistaken were you that year you were just doing the naughty list I think, yeah that, right? that's that was the whole thing Right, because my memory is watching you guys do improv, and I'm going to be like, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. I want to get okay. into like improv and what that is. But my experience with improv, and I think I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, is like, and I've seen, you know, improv in New York and Boston and LA. I've seen it here in Albuquerque. I've seen it up in Denver. And it's like, for me, when improv works, it's awesome. I love it. And when it doesn't work, it's like, you kind of want to hide under the chair, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. like as an audience member. What I remember about the naughty list, I'm going to be honest, like, I don't really remember anyone else from that year. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, guys, like, I'm just blanking, but I remember you. And I remember right away being like, oh, she's fucking funny. Thanks. Like, yeah. she's like, I was like, oh, she's got something. I don't know who this person is, but she's fucking funny. So, cool. and I mean, and I think that's probably one of the biggest compliments I've gotten is, you know, like, you should be a comedian. Mm -hmm. Um, and to me yeah the naughty list has been one of the most fun times of every year something to look forward to like a little bit of escapism from Mm -hmm. you know the 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 confines of scripted work Um, so it's something that like yes I was always super enthusiastic and and I'm not I think I know that I'm the only person that has done it every single year since that first year Mm -hmm. Um, the team has gone through a lot of iterations and you know people leaving and moving and then us having to add more people so in my memory of that first year is and I think it's like this a lot of times with improv it was like everyone was pretty funny and there were a couple standout people and every I think every year that we've seen it, I always feel like you're the standout and that's just me like um <laughs> me in front of your fans <laughs> <laughs> but but that's but that this is exactly why I wanted to have you on because I really want to talk about like I'm everyone as everyone who listens to the show knows I'm a horror writer and a filmmaker I'm not known for my work being particularly funny you know but I'm fascinated by comedy so I really want to talk to someone who's like deeply in that world so I guess my first question is do you think of yourself as an actor first or as like a comedian first and then what is that what do each of those mean to you yes I mean and that's a great question because right now I think I'm redefining whatever label I'm trying to put or umbrella I'm trying to put under my artistry in general like mm-hmm. what is that title? What is the caption to the work that I do? And how mm-hmm. would I encapsulate that? And what would be 
at the forefront of that description. And, mm. um, and I think most of my artistic work up until the last like three to four years or so has been scripted work. Mm -hmm. um, so through that though, in terms of like what I seek out in my own personal life, I would say it, it leans more towards comedy. Like what am I consuming most mm -hmm. of? And whether it's scripted or not, like it's for me, the construction of a joke is so fascinating. Mm. And from a writing perspective, um, I guess that's kind of where I came from. I was a writer first um, mm. and then I was an actor and then wanted to be a director and then kind of took a break from all of that. When I moved back from Chicago in 2012, I didn't do any theater of any kind, like workshop, performance, nothing for, mm -hmm. for five years. And then it was my audition for Duke City Rep that was kind of my foot in the door for that. Oh, wow. And so like up until my life, all of that time, I would have considered myself an actor first. Um, mm. But now, uh, you know, venturing into stand-up comedy is the next frontier right. of my artistry that I'm just again super fascinated with it as an art form that's the next step and that's I guess right now where my priorities are and I think the pandemic you know changed a lot of things yeah. I'm sure that pops up in almost every episode of almost every podcast these days because <laughs> it, it was just such a weird time for artists mm -hmm. and especially theater artists who depend on being in close proximity with each other and in close proximity to an audience and that just wasn't an option for three years yeah and now it's starting to come back a little bit but in that time improv was still happening in the way that you and I are talking on Zoom right. right now you could still find these improv spaces where people were laughing and taking a break and escaping the realities mm -hmm. of quarantine and all of the all of the stuff that we've been enduring for the last three years and I will say we're lucky to still be enduring it because so many aren't yeah. and in that time it was comedy was so necessary what is the lens that we can put on this shit show to make it less shitty mm -hmm. and comedy was a huge part of that and improv was a huge part of that and what do we find funny now I think yeah. it changed I think it went through this well, absolutely evolution of now we laugh a little bit differently and maybe at different things mm -hmm. um but it was a constant so now I'm getting back into scripted work as well. And that's been a delight and a joy. But in terms of what my next steps are, I would say that's leaning more towards comedy. Yeah. And and when you say leaning towards comedy, is that like, I'm assuming that means the stand up, the improv, like kind of all of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So was like comedy, was that kind of your way through the pandemic, do you think? Because I, I know from talking to Amelia and like a lot of my actor and performer friends really had a hard time for the last two years. It was, I think for me, like I got through okay because I'm a writer. So I was like, you know, things actually didn't change that much for me. Yeah, having a very solitary hobby. Yeah, in a way it was like, oh, I don't have to make an excuse to not go to this party. Like, yeah. <laughs> you like the, know, the so. The knows the excuse. Everybody knows when you're not going to be there. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Why so it's like. happening anyway? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think for me, it was like, in that sense, I look at the last two years as like, oh, I think that was probably less traumatic for me than it was for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But I know like Amelia had a hard time and I know she's talking about this very podcast being kind of like her outlet. So comedy was kind of an improv was kind of yours. Yes. And we were still able to do the holiday review a couple of times through the right. pandemic. And because of the morph and the transition that whole group has been through over the last six years now, I've inherited it as the thing that I lead and facilitate and 
um, mm-hmm. plan. I'm more like the admin of the naughty list. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, like the improvisational guide, like what language are we using around improv? Right. Um, so that's been a very cool trajectory. But being able to go to that during the pandemic and actually perform, and although it was virtual, it was there. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was doable. And it was with a group of people that I really care about and respect very right. much. Um, and then being able to hop into a Zoom room with, you know, people, local improvisational artists and, mm-hmm. you know, just play for two hours. That was a way to still be as close to the person that I was prior to the pandemic during the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. So extremely great. That's interesting. That. Yeah. The, the way you just said it, the way to keep you close to being the person that you were before. Cause I know that, you know, for, I've always said this to like, cause I get a lot of actors taking my writing classes. I and mean, I've always said to actors in terms of artists out there, you guys have like the hardest uh what would the word be like row to hoe or however you say that um <laughs> that's how i say it <laughs> yeah i'm like is that the right <laughs> is that or is that like vaguely offensive i don't know but anyway um, <laughs> um in the comments yeah <laughs> but what i always tell my students is like acting is the only art form i can think of where you're kind of waiting for someone to give you permission to do your art and so i'm always okay. telling actors like if you can act you can also write like the skill sets are very similar you know but even before pandemic i know that this was a problem with a lot of my actor friends is you know if they weren't working they would kind of start being like who am i like what am i doing like what's my purpose and so when everything shut down for two years i've just got to imagine it was like that like cubed you know um so having something like the improv so how how does that work virtually uh, so I will say the transition out of it has been very interesting because mm. in cl- in-person classes are happening, in-person performances are happening, and dabbling back in there, because you and I, if we were doing improv right now, I mm. wouldn't have really an environment that I needed to interact with, whereas right. on a stage, right, the audience is seeing it, and they don't see it until you build it for them, until you mm. name the thing. That thing doesn't exist. And here, like the scope of it is so much smaller. So yes, maybe I I pick up a glass of water and I drink that and maybe like, but the ways of creating an environment are completely different. So I will say there's been some like improvisational muscles that have atrophied in the pandemic Mm. um, as a result of practicing it in a much different way than live performance requires and expects. Uh, So sometimes (laughs) it's like, what do I do with my hands? I forgot that those existed. Yeah, I'm well, able that's more interesting. To build text over Zoom, that's kind of the zhuzh of online improvisational theater. Is the words do become a little bit more important? I was going to say my experience. I felt like I noticed one thing I noticed with like the thoughty list and some of the other like online improv stuff I've seen over the last couple of years is it becomes much more about the wordplay and a little less like when I think about when I've seen improv at like Upright Citizens Brigade, it's very physical. It's very much about the physicality. Yeah. How was that to transition into that? I mean, I think some people kind of found what their comfort zone was because they never had like this way of comparing what does it feel like to Mm -hmm. not have that and not need it versus having it and needing it all of the time and we didn't really have a barometer for that like what's the difference because it was always Mm -hmm. on stage it was always in front of people it was always you know the world building kind of maintain that thing and then having the same goal to build a full world with characters with internal lives that are speaking from their truth supporting all of that stuff all of that stuff still exists on zoom but for me i guess maybe like i am 
also figuring out that writing is somewhere in there also because mm-hmm. I haven't really done that that much but I do enjoy doing improv with my words like that's mm-hmm. that's my comfort zone and then you see some very physical improvisers and that to me is intimidating and that's something that I want to get better at and something that mm-hmm. I was building towards prior to the pandemic and now it feels like I've started there at square one but perhaps my verbal world building is maybe stronger for it well, and I've always thought, like, when I think back on uh, the first time I saw you at Ugly Sweater Review, I think the thing I noticed is how, like, sharp you were with the words. Like, you were very quick with, like, the joke and the punchline in a really organic way. Which, to me, a lot of times, like, that's where I feel like improv can fall down for me. And maybe this is me coming at it from a writer's perspective, too, is when it becomes too much about the physical or just about going, like, full bore into the absurdity you know it can kind of just lose me a little bit the way I think about how I've seen you work in an improv environment is when things start to kind of like spin out of control you're always in there with like a joke or something that kind of brings it back down like in a grounded way is that something you think about or is that kind of natural just like a natural instinct uh and I I think it really just depends on the group of people you're playing with uh identifying the gaps being able to look at it from the outside mm-hmm. and ask like what does this thing need right now mm-hmm. and, th- and thanks to dcrt i get to have these two really cool interesting languages around art mm. and then finding where they intersect has been so fun so when we talk about filling in the gaps like what's necessary mm-hmm. um how can you enhance and lift the thing how can you increase not just the understanding of what's going on on stage, but always to be in service of the audience. And that's what I, mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the methodology that I was taught through DCRT specifically, but have mm-hmm. been able to apply in any artistic endeavor. If you're not thinking of the people that are consuming it, mm-hmm. then it belongs in a journal next right. to your bed, right. close the drawer. <laughs> Nobody needs to see that then. Yeah. Um, and I think so often we do see a lot of art that is self-serving. Mm-hmm. And while I think art will always have that benefit, if that's the only aim that you're putting behind your art, yeah, it, going to serve anyone yeah, else. then I don't know, just be like JD Salinger, like you know, in in the mountains in New Hampshire, putting stuff in a drawer, like you said. Yeah, well, that's, that's interesting because that's something I think about with my writing, and this is an area where I feel like comedy and horror actually intersect a little bit in that they're both very lizard brain based like they're both like there can be an intellectual component to it but like Stephen King always talks about the three levels of horror where he talks about you know terror is the finest emotion and then below that is horror and then like at the bottom is the gross out and it's always like you can have the most intellectual horror movie out there but on some level it's always asking you how'd you like to have like an alien slug attached to your face you know it's always like gets to that Mm -hmm. kind of base level at some point and I feel like comedy kind of does a similar thing in that it's like it can be very thoughtful and intellectual but it always has to hit you like whatever hits the funny bone has to be almost sub-intellect in a way And I think Um, another comparison between being a horror writer, specifically not just a writer, but a horror writer, somebody who loves (laughs) the stuff that you love, (laughs) which is not stuff for everybody. And what makes a successful person in improv is being able to identify the things that speak to you personally and being Mm -hmm. able to mark those. So for you, and this is me assuming, and please tell me if I'm wrong, but some of the fun is being like, what would terrify me? Oh, absolutely. I find scary. Mm -hmm. And then if I get to that thing, what else in this world is true and how much terrifying can it be now that I've identified that thing? And for me, I'm at a point in in my improv and um, 
I'm going to drop the name, Eric Weiss. He's my mm-hmm. current improv mentor and mm-hmm. has been for a long time. Somebody that I just look to and try. He's very funny. I've seen he's yeah, very, he's very funny good. and just, just an all around solid individual who mm-hmm. loves improv more than mostly anybody I've ever known or met. Mm. And we were actually talking about next steps for my improv. And he said, I think you're at a point where you need to identify the things that tickle you. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to say like, I find it funny when, and then you'll be able to play from that. And because mm-hmm. you have a personal connection to that humor and that comedy, yeah. your improv will be better. So I think that's interesting because if you're just trying to think of what scares everybody else, mm-hmm. you're going to be fabricating something. Right. Cause it's like, I'll just write another zombie movie or something, you know, it's like exactly. whatever, whatever is popular, I guess. But like one, I guess that's what I was going to get at is like, so there's that weird balance that I think about with my own writing and my own filmmaking between I've got, yeah, I've got to hit my own reptile brain of like what scares me, which is very specific and unique to me. But like, if I just stay in that space, then you just kind of go up your own ass yeah you know so it's like finding a way to like okay here's this but like i'm specifically terrified of the ocean and a lot of people are but i'm like very specifically like there's specific things about the ocean that terrify me that are probably like not the typical like oh sharks or drowning or whatever it's it's like the immensity of it you know stuff like that and i've got to like translate that to someone else who maybe doesn't quite have the same phobia that i do i would think with comedy like it's the same thing where like you find like you said what tickles you but then the balance is like how do you make that bridge to someone else yes and it's all about finding the truth of it Mm -hmm. anytime that I try to be funny if that's the goal if that's what I'm Mm -hmm. aiming for it doesn't work and I think maybe anytime you try to be scary Mm -hmm. because it doesn't mean anything (laughs) yeah if I'm trying to make myself laugh I know what I find funny and it's easier right. to write from that place. It's easier to perform from that place. And then when I disconnect from that place, my improv just, it, it falls flat. And I'm in mm-hmm. kind of a, a, a weird lull right now where I'm trying to reinvigorate my, mm-hmm. my comedic brain. And I think- well, and that's, I mean, that's the hard thing. Like everyone talks to me like, oh, during pandemic, you must've watched so many horror movies. And I'm like, no, I, I really didn't actually. And that's cause I'm already like, I'm reading a lot of horror. I'm writing a lot of horror. Like, you know, if I'm in that world too much, it just kind of kills it after a while. It's like what they always say, like whatever it is you're passionate about, don't make it your job because then it just becomes a job. So like, I feel like what you're saying kind of is like, you've been so in the world of comedy that like, you have to like back up a little bit and like remind yourself like to be amused, to find things funny. You yes, know? absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of a constant growth. And that's what I love about art in general is you'll never, you'll never figure it out. You'll never unlock the thing because you'll keep evolving and therefore your perspective and what you mm-hmm. can take and the things that you pursue will always be changing. And for comedy, it's, you know, it's the same thing. And I think one of the strongest things and one of the most important things that I can do as an artist in general is find, develop, and identify my comedic voice mm-hmm. and then use that and, you know, own it as the superpower that it is. So, I mean, and I think that's, that's, you know, that's what I want to do. Ultimately, I would love to do stand up mm-hmm. regularly and consistently and, and continue to, to develop that part of my, my artistry. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. What do you find funny? <laughs> it's like cussing. harder to articulate <laughs> yeah kids cussing to me that's one of the funniest oh, yeah. things I, I i love that um <laughs> I, I love the idea of like silent retreats 
like you're paying somebody like you find yourself <laughs> so annoying that you're paying somebody yeah to get you to shut up like i love <laughs> just the irony of that and the weird yeah you know, the weird things that we pay for as a society. Mm -hmm. And there's so much. So I'm in taking a lot of things. And once you do a lot of improv, you start looking at scripted work that is really mm -hmm. just really good improv, like really strong, sure of themselves characters who come into a situation that is a little weird, right? <laughs> a little right. out of the ordinary. But today is an extraordinary day for these people because whatever's happening. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, I will say that I'm a Friends fan. I do no, enjoy yeah. Friends. I think Friends, if you watch it as improv, the way that they set up a joke, the way that they mm -hmm. pay off a joke that was dropped earlier, all of that to me is just really great writing. And um, mm -hmm. and now I, I do view most art like, is this good improv? Which is silly because it's not on mm -hmm. the spot, you know? And that's the magic of improv. When improv mm -hmm. can sound scripted, that's kind of what right. you want it to be. And yeah a lot of the things that I pursue in terms of like scripted work sound like really good improv. So like back to like where, like I said, like improv either works or it doesn't kind of thing. That's what's exciting just as an audience member about going to improv. Like if you go to like a stand-up comedy show and say it's not an open mic or something, that's like, you know, say you're going to a show from someone who you know they have like a routine that they've worked out and they've got jokes and they've road showing them. And like, you kind of know you're going to get something good. Like it may or may not be your kind of thing, but it'll be, there'll be a level of polish to it. There'll yeah. be, you know, it's the same if you go see a good piece of theater, like really well done Shakespeare. It's like, okay, there's a certain amount of skill that has gone into this. It's been rehearsed, it's been polished, and then now we're presenting it to you. What's exciting about improv is that, oh, this could totally fail. Like, and there's no way to predict it. And I've seen like some brilliant, like I've seen this at Upright Citizens Brigade. So it's like, you know, some like known improv performers just tank. Like they had an idea and they're like, we're going for this and it didn't work and you can see them realize it's not working and like I said you want to crawl under your chair you're so embarrassed for them yeah. but at the same time that's the excitement and I've got to imagine like is that part of the excitement and doing it like versus right. doing scripted yep like uh, what is that experience <laughs> yeah you go out there and the only thing that you have is your brain and the people on stage with you that's it mm -hmm. that's all you have there's no safety net there's no guarantees mm -hmm. um but the weird thing that happens in your brain when it works and you know it's working and you're mm -hmm. in it, you're relating, you're listening, you're responding from this little lizard brain is just mm -hmm. like hearing and picking up everything and spitting out the first thing that comes. Right. When you're in that zone, there's nothing like it. There's, mm -hmm. there's nothing in this world that feels as good as that, that I've experienced. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to say it's not the majority of the time. And that's part of coming <laughs> up in improv. Uh, it's yeah. not every time. It's not anything that you can count on. And because I've never really experienced a long-term consistently rehearsing improv experience, mm -hmm. you take workshops and you work with the same people. You may build right. a team and you work with the same people, um, but it hasn't been a long-term thing. And that's something that I'm trying to build because the trust, if you don't have trust with the people mm. you're on stage with, if you're oh. judging or feel judged by them, it is so yeah. much harder to live in that space of abandon. Just to let it go. Well, I mean, it's it's hard enough. This is something Amelia and I have talked about. It's hard enough, I think, for actors doing scripted work. You've got to have that trust and everything. 
because you're still hanging out there on stage exposed you know Mm -hmm. but yeah there's the lack of safety net with improv is fascinating to me because like i said i've seen great improv teams great improv troops you know well-known improv performers just totally tank and it's like because for whatever reason it didn't click that night you know and it's so hard to point at any one thing as to why a improv performance doesn't work you know and that's just with the repetition and one thing that i appreciate from eric weiss is one of the first class classes i took from him he said as you're pursuing improv as an art form that you do often your goal should not be to raise your ceiling your goal should be to raise your floor Mm. so that even your worst improv is not that bad (laughs) Mm, that's yeah that's a great way of thinking about it yeah and and i think and that's how i think of everything now Mm -hmm. like i want on my worst day i want it to be manageable (laughs) you know like i think of that in my mental health i think of that in my scripted work i think of that Mm -hmm. in in everything that i do and pursue now like i'm i'm not i am trying to get better of course and i think that's a byproduct of just trying also not to be as bad as you were the last Mm -hmm. time raise the floor that, that, I, I love that. I, I think that's particularly important for something like improv, where it's like, I mean, the floor can be so low because it is, it just, it'll fall apart, like in a moment, you know, yeah. you know, you don't have that script or whatever to like fall back on. And you can see like, anytime you see uh, an improv show, I also look at it through that lens. There are some people who can consistently do improv and it always be at least watchable because mm-hmm. they've raised their floor they don't they don't fall into the pitfalls anymore and they're able to write a scene and they're able to to, to figure out what good exists mm-hmm. and they also always see the genius in the person that they're working with that those are, those are the ways to to build it, it up and that goes back to the trust thing and that takes me back to thinking of i think one of the first times i saw improv in la at uh, ucb i do not remember who the performers were but i feel like it was their ascat troop which is like their big ones i can't remember who was doing it It was probably 10 years ago they were doing a game it completely like one of the performers took it in a direction where just it wasn't gonna work and what was great is seeing they realized it and they were like how can we rescue this and then it was like this team effort to rescue it by just pushing the absurdity so far and it became like almost this meta thing about like let's make bad improv funny you know like they were very aware that like yeah we fucked up guys and then they made that awareness funny i remember thinking like oh that's like professionals because yeah, <laughs> like if you put me up there i would freeze have you ever had that experience of just totally like bombing <laughs> oh yeah what does that yeah. feel like not to not to like rub your nose in it but i'm no. fascinated by this. <laughs> do you still feel it do you think about it at night? <laughs> yeah, every night every night i fall asleep like yeah. it wasn't always good uh there was, there's been a couple of times on stage and man i really don't want to call anybody out specifically because they are so yeah you don't need to name names <laughs> uh, but there have been some times when because we kind of think of improv any move that you make you -hmm. can either be giving a gift or you can be swatting a gift out of their hands right Mm -hmm. like those are those are the options yeah there there are more but those are two main options right and you always want to go down to like yeah you receive the gift nicely and you give something back because that's manners right (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, but there are some people you will offer them something and they will literally swat it out of your hands 
Mm-hmm. But she came in with him, though, not today. <laughs> just swat yeah. it out. And then you're like, then I really just don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know. And I think uh, in Amy Poehler's book, she talks about never forgetting the people that have left her hanging on stage. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's a real thing. That's a real thing. And I'm sure there's some improviser in the community that's like, yeah, Danielle, you're that for me. <laughs> you know, we're all learning and we all we all do mm-hmm. stuff and every once in a while and there there's some you, things that you can't rescue i mean you can see i this is something i'm what is the whole thing i don't know if this is just like a cliche i don't know if this is something improv people actually say but what is the thing like you're never supposed to say no it's always yes yeah and there's there's a fun little um arc of growth that you go through with that particular mm-hmm. because for me it's true like denying any reality that somebody has set up is the, the scene's going to go in the opposite direction that you intended mm-hmm. it to. But there is a thing where some people interpret that particular note as, okay, I can't disagree. Mm. Uh, I can't stand firm in my character's want because that mm. would be denying the other character's want. And sometimes, and I've learned this from people at the box, Eric reiterates it. Sometimes the only way to say yes is to say no. Interesting. Yeah. Like if I'm a mom and my kid comes in late, curfew um and they give me a reason i don't back down i don't say well oh, okay well then that's fine because mm-hmm. that's denying the truth of my character and therefore also denying the reality that we've established right. as as scene partners um so that's something that i struggle with consistently as an agreeable human being in general by nature mm-hmm. um, kind of breaking that thing what again what does the scene need what does it require right how do i get to the truth of the comedy of this scene mm-hmm you know and and sometimes that's not abandoning your point of view yeah digging your heels further into your point of view creating conflict through having differing points of view instead well, of yeah, arguing you need... for argument's sake yeah because conflict i mean that's just like basics of storytelling and improv is storytelling yeah. you know so it's not yeah it's not about avoiding conflict i think if i hear what you're saying it sounds like the like slapping the gift out of the hand that what that's saying no by saying like, okay, the idea you're bringing to the table, I'm not interested in, so I'm going to just steamroll you. Yes. And I've and, seen that happen, and that's always just like, ooh. One of the things that you're in there and, mm-hmm. and just just kind of have yeah. to throw your hands up and say, all right, fine, we'll we'll ride your train. Cause- well, and that, that is a performer on stage with you, like breaking trust, it seems mm-hmm. like. Like the only way to trust that person yeah. is to just go with their idea. I do want to talk about stand-up comedy, but before we get there, I have never really talked to you about like your history as like an actor before this going back and improv and stuff. Like what, what kind of drew you to performance and like, when did that happen for you? Uh, so it happened uh, in middle school, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. Like my whole entry into arts in general, nobody in my family can ever believe it because up until mm-hmm. my early to mid teens, I was pretty silent as a kid. Um, mm. Didn't want to be seen, hated any attention on me. I would just yeah. crumble. I would crumble from it. There was one time that my sister took me to Walgreens. She always tells this story. She took me to Walgreens and I handed her money that I had earned allowance or whatever right. and asked her if she could buy me a pack of Skittles. And she mm. said, no, you're going to do it. So I put my money in my pocket <laughs> and walked out of the store. <laughs> like, oh, no, well, you not. couldn't. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I was probably like 12 at that point. Like I was already so that's like, like a in, human being that was like walking and just like intense shyness, basically intense shyness. Mm. And I don't, and I mean, theater is the only thing that changed that. I don't know. I don't know who I would be or what I would have become without an outlet where my voice wasn't mine, but in some way 
gave me more ownership of it because that's what theater did for me. And so I was 13 and it was one of those things that my friends had auditioned for a play. I didn't because I was too shy. Mm -hmm. They got in and they had all of these inside jokes and they had all of this, like they would go Mm. and they would hang out without me to do like lines and to, you know, to rehearse. And it was just, I was like, not again. Like a little bit of FOMO happening there. Yes, fear. Of, yeah. And it, yeah, I like that. I was going to define FOMO. Everybody knows what FOMO is. But I <laughs> was, yeah, I was like, cool. The next time an audition comes around, I'm going to be there with you. And it's mm-hmm. funny to look back. I'm the only one that still does it in that group of friends that I had back then. Because I think it just meant more. I thought it was going to yeah. be a social uh, thing where I could connect to the people that I was comfortable with but it expanded my circle of people that I was comfortable with. And there's this mm-hmm. shared language between artists that nobody else really understands. And yeah, we were the weirdos and yeah, we ate under the stairs and yeah, we mm-hmm. would eat in the drama classroom, but we would eat there together. And we mm-hmm. got at least that. Right. And um, I, I wouldn't have traded the camaraderie within theater for anything, but then also just being able to speak in front of people. What was that? Something. Like the, cause I took an, I took an acting class once. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in graduate school. So I would have been like 26. And it was like specifically an acting class geared towards writers and directors. And it was required. I wouldn't have taken it otherwise. And I remember just feeling so stupid up there and like just not comfortable in my skin and like, what am I doing? And then I had this one moment where I was doing a scene with my scene partner and I'm supposed to be like hitting on her. And I looked at her and we just had that like snap connection. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh, that's what it feels like. So like, what was that moment like for you? Like the first time you had that, something came alive doing theater. Yeah, uh, I would say, I mean, the very first play that I did, it was a spoof on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And it was Mm. called Flaky Snow and the Seven Dwarfs. (laughs) Yep, real quality. And everybody, like everybody who did school and like, theater in high school they remember the little chat books that you would get and you know, mm. the teacher would kind of like pass them out and it was a, a short play festival that we were doing and this was a one act and I played one of the dwarfs mm-hmm. like the comedic dwarf I think that's, that's yeah. kind of what I was cast as had to do a Jamaican accent which we won't talk about like the inherent <laughs> yeah. bullshit I was gonna say yeah directed choice and I was 13 whatever Mm -hmm. you know I've moved on however through that uh I was able to be silly and I Mm. did not live my life as a silly child I did not I was not amused by most things that happened (laughs) I was very serious Mm. Uh, I was regimented I was a rule follower Mm. um I was stringent in my feelings and my beliefs, which yeah. thankfully were pretty liberal. Like I wasn't a weird yeah. like asshole kid who thought <laughs> terrible things and like stood by them. But, um, but rigid. rigid. I was rigid. I was yeah. very rigid in my thinking and in my behavior. And this particular play called for something a little bit different and just how much fun it was to not abide by my day-to-day rule set. It just felt mm. like things were possible. Other things were possible. Other ways were possible. It, it was instant. It was one of those things got on stage, did it. I think getting a laugh, mm-hmm. that was probably mm-hmm. the first time that I ever got a laugh on yeah. stage intentionally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was supposed to be there instead of like messing up your science fair presentation. Yeah. Again, I'm fine. <laughs> <There's no> residual, <laughs> residual issues from school. Yeah. But that, yeah, that unlocked something. And it's still something that I'm trying to name, trying to define, trying to hold right. on. Uh, but, you know, there was a time that I, didn't 
uh, invest in that part of my life. And that to me was the weirdest five years. It's like almost a time that I've blacked out because it's so vastly different. And this was the, the time before Ugly Sweater Review. Yeah. yeah. What was it? I mean, you don't have to get into it if you don't want to, but what was it that kind of steered you away from it for a while? Yeah, uh, no, that's that's a, a really great question. So I didn't go to college directly out of high school. Uh, mm-hmm. I took a few years off and then worked for a theater company, a theater slash visual art company in town called Working Classroom. And oh, yeah, okay. I had that connection. Her and I had that same job. Right. She left the company and then I was hired and took her position, but we had never met up to that. Oh, point. interesting. I hadn't heard yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, pretty crazy. And um, they pursued scholarships for me to go to college. And I was 21, mm-hmm. 22 at that point. Okay. And um, Chicago was kind of always the thing that I, the place that I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I had never been there. And I was like, it, when I was looking at schools at that time, I was like, Chicago. There's something and, about it. There's something about Chicago because it wasn't quite as intimidating as New York. And mm-hmm. also uh, it was, it just felt like a good jumping off point and a good place to cultivate yeah. my voice and my work. And um, I had and kind of a some... similar thing with Boston. Oh, really? Like I was just always fascinated by Boston. And so I moved there. Yeah. And I think when I was applying for schools back in high school, Boston was on my radar. I still would love to to visit Boston. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I have all sorts of thoughts about Boston now. Yeah, but... It's a brawling city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm not much of a brawler. So no. I don't know how much I would fit in there. So Chicago. And there were some yeah. other people that had come up through Working Classroom that were theater organization who had also gone to Chicago from there through scholarships provided by the company. Uh, so they like handed me a pamphlet and they were like DePaul University and I was like okay so I mm. looked through it and it had a conservatory program so it was going right. to be I didn't have to take math <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I had to take a writing class in my first year but I mean mm-hmm. that was so close to my interest anyways it wasn't, right. it wasn't a terrible thing right yeah so I I got to Chicago and I did uh, about a year and a half there and it, it was disheartening for me because I thought that was going to be the place in a way that my voice was going to be mm. welcome in the room. Mm. Um, and I think I just pedestaled the experience because yeah. in, in every city that I've been in, theater is still trying to shake off the cobwebs of classist white cis male right. theater. Um, right. And some communities aren't doing the work to do that. Right. Um, and it was just baffling to me that in a lot of ways, Chicago was still doing that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it was just a, a big bummer for me. Still so, stuck, kind of. Still stuck a little bit. Yeah. And there were some like theater companies that were doing the work, but not considering the people that they were working with. Right. So they would do quote unquote black theater and they would, you know, have a black director and that stuff is have a non-black director mm. in a piece about a black experience and that yeah. to me is just how does that ever work mm-hmm. right. how do you build safety in a space uh, for right. that to happen like you don't just get to do the work for the sake of doing it and then say like oh we're a theater that's doing the work and I, I just saw that so much too much in Chicago and it kind of just made me feel like that's the way theater is that's the way it so treats us. That's kind of the institution. It's been institutionalized and it's not anything where you can create right. and be safe at the same time. So when I came back, I was like, yeah, I think I just need to get a job. I need mm. to I need to work. I need to make money. Uh, Cause I've spent so much of my time caring and loving this thing 
that never felt like it was going to care and love me back to the same extent. So you feel kind of betrayed by it? A little bit. Yeah, that. Yeah, I feel. I mean, for very different reasons, but I felt that a little bit about film for a long time. How Um, long has it been since you've done film? I mean, I've I've dabbled in things here and there, but the last completed short film I've done was in 2014. My feature came out. I mean, I shot my feature film in 2012, 2013. I think it came out in 2015. I haven't done much since then. I mean, I've been mostly focused on the fiction writing, but there was something, and I didn't have the experiences that you're talking about, obviously, but like, there was something about, you know, and dealing with Hollywood and dealing with all the compromises and stuff that was like, oh, this thing I love kind of feel like it's kind of turning on me, yeah. you know, and I had to get, but I had, you know, I had the fiction writing background to like go back to. Mm-hmm. Did you just felt like you had nothing to go back to? So you just yeah. walked away entirely. Oh, wow. Like I hadn't cultivated any other serious artistic skills. Because I had invested so much in performance. And when I went to school, I did major in directing. That was going to, because I wanted to have more control over the process. And I wanted, you know, whose voice is louder than the the director. So it was all for, you know, self-serving reasons. But in the first year, you're just exposed to the theater. Like you get Mm -hmm. to go see plays and you are working. You're not even allowed to perform in your first year at DePaul. Really? So you're doing stage building. and Okay costume design which i think every person who does theater needs to realize how hard those things are yeah. i mean it makes sense in a way to like like no you gotta like have a full theater experience yeah. and and but then you know i was crewing for things like sam shepherd you know right <laughs> this institution that the population is extremely diverse and your programming is not reflecting mm-hmm. your pool of students right like, any students of color you have are still being wedged into these roles in the chorus mm-hmm. the two line roles and some mm. like and i was just like what first off what sam shepherd you can see him literally anywhere right this is the time and place in an experimental conservatory to be doing the stuff that nobody else is seeing to be doing mm. the stuff that nobody else is doing right and i was like and then i got fed up with that and i was like well i'm just gonna go see more theater clearly that's what i need to do (laughs) i was like all right that was a mistake that was the same stuff is happening the exact Mm -hmm. same stuff is happening out there but i will say like one thing i'm super grateful for in chicago i had never done improv up to that point and i didn't do improv when i went to school but i did see a lot of it because chicago does have such a yeah that's true because it's got second city and like yeah second city comedy sports like all of that stuff was there right and then that was i guess that was the first time that i was like i am in pursuit of improv as a spectator Mm -hmm. um like oh i love this so you really connected to it sounds like Yeah. yeah that was like cool no rehearsal on friday who wants to go to an improv show? And just around the corner from where I lived, uh, DePaul is located in Lincoln Park, which is one of the more affluent neighborhoods in Chicago. Within walking distance, there was a little theater and they hosted a musical improv troupe called Baby Wants Candy. Mm-hmm. And we have some roots here in Albuquerque from people that have performed at that very space and have come to Albuquerque right. from there. They've, maybe they lived in Albuquerque and then did that and then came back. But whatever their relationship was it's weird to have those paths kind of cross but it was within walking distance it was byob which albuquerque needs mm-hmm. to get on yeah <laughs> like, I, mean, I mean maybe not i know that we don't have the best rep in terms of like drinking and behaving yeah, but, but 
that's probably true. No, <laughs> good like, point. Pull up Albuquerque. Right. <laughs> fun. Hold but your liquor. Chicago, yeah. that was one of my f- favorite things about it is you could go in with a six pack of beer, watch an improv show. Most mm-hmm. places were that way. And that was one of the, the most fun times I had because Chicago in general was not what I would classify as a happy time. Mm. Like, nobody can prepare you for those winters. Like that's just not no. a thing. They can I mean, say it, they can say it as much as they yeah. want, but nobody is ready, uh, especially when they're a lizard and come mm, from the dead. Right. I mean, just my last episode here with Rebecca Rowland, we were talking about the Boston winners, and now that was a shock to my system coming from yeah. here. Definitely. Yeah, that's like and and it's and it's sitting in a place that you don't want to leave your house. <laughs> like, yeah. And like it's easy to kind of laugh that off, but actually, I think that's an important thing. I ended up really struggling with some pretty severe depression issues in Boston and then post Boston, and honestly, like the weather and no sun. That's not that's not a nothing. Like that that is actually a real thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It is. And again, another thing that people can tell you, like, hey, that you won't see the sun for a while, or hey, it rains yeah. in Chicago. I'm like, it rains <laughs> in New Mexico. <laughs> right. It's not the same thing. <laughs> and like, you're not going to see the sun for a while. They don't tell you that means six months. Yeah. 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 But when I think of Chicago, I think of those nights. I think mm-hmm. of going and finding like the the nearest improv show. And going and sitting and laughing for a bit. Right. And those are like the memories that I hold on to most. So Chicago, for that reason, still has an extremely fond place in in my life, in my heart. And when I think of it, I think of it fondly, even though like if I brought in my memory a little bit, I'm like, oh, yeah, let's just narrow it back down. Yeah. But you you got something really important out of it, but you didn't do improv right away, it sounds like. Was there anything in particular that held you back from doing it? Or was it just you didn't have the opportunity? I think up to that point, improv had been introduced to me as a tool for actors, for scripted okay. work. Like it is, it is not a thing yeah. that you do. It is not a thing that you do in front of people. It is a way that you learn how to let go so you can commit to text a little bit better. Yeah, it sounds um, like a little bit of snobbishness there. Maybe. And, yeah. and, and man, so much of theater just comes from a really snobby, snobby <laughs> upbringing or at least yeah. like a snobby mid period where it started cool and then somebody got a hold of it and messed it all up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of those things that, yeah, for... for for me, I didn't realize that it could be that. And then I went mm-hmm. to Chicago and saw that and then took my hiatus from theater. And then my entry back into theater was improv. Yeah. Which, like, it was all, it all was meant to be. It was all meant to happen. Because I will say, had I not had that time in Chicago, when being approached with doing improv here in New Mexico, I probably would have turned it down. Because mm-hmm. I would have had no scope for what it could do. Right and what good improv looks like but because i at least mm. had that to hang on to aside from like whose line is it anyway which right which i i watched and yeah i mean i've done improv yeah <laughs> i mean I, I enjoyed it well enough i guess i don't yeah i mean and i still go back sometimes because there's still some some really good stuff mm-hmm. um but that was i guess my context growing up that those four guys did improv on tv right and then being able to see so many different people mm-hmm. and a lot of people who looked like me doing it well, and I think and there's... that's also a really important thing that you have to, like, for me up to that point, Wayne Brady was like the Black person who does improv. Right. The only one. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? um, and then well, he and when go I... to Chicago and it's just not the case. He was not the only one. <laughs> yeah, it's very much true. And like, when I think of the whole whose line is it anyway thing, 
like the the way improv was presented is this very safe kind of thing like it always felt very low stakes on that show and maybe it's because all those performers were really so good that they were never really gonna bomb and like if they did i'm sure they edited it out you know whatever what was really great about those four guys is they also knew each other's superpowers so they were really great about like yeah throwing up that easy ball you know right here's a character i'm gonna introduce a character that you're already good at (laughs) right yeah (laughs) yeah no that's true but like when i first saw improv like i said where it really you just felt like you're watching people like swinging on a trapeze without a net like it's a very different experience and and just the the controlled and sometimes not controlled chaos of it that's where like even when it doesn't work even when something kind of goes awry it's still fascinating yes and like but i'm i'm way too terrified to like try it myself so i'm always fascinated by people who are willing to get up and do that and i guess that's maybe a segue i do want to talk to you about and i know you kind of indicated you have thoughts about this i want to talk about stand-up because this is something you're you're getting into now yes for the so, first time and it's something that i've thought about and talked about for such a long time mm-hmm. that uh I mean, I just put it off and put it off. And it's so interesting to me. I can't, I'm still like struggling to identify what the fear is around stand-up, having been a performer, having been in front of audiences, having right. bombed in front of audience. Like I've done some really bad improv shows for people. And if you're out there listening, <laughs> I remember them. Don't worry. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, you don't need to remind yeah, them. Yeah, I they know. Yeah. Um, but like there was something, there was something keeping me from stand-up. So I considered myself more of like a like a researcher of stand-up comedy I would Mm -hmm. watch stand-up and I would dissect how they got that laugh like Mm -hmm. what was the process what was like the seed of the idea that they were able to like nurture and grow and they clipped off just the right things and it resulted in laughter Mm -hmm. so I watched so much stand-up comedy and I mean and it was probably people in conversation saying like have you done stand-up? And mm-hmm. that wouldn't be the source of conversation, but it'd be people just my cadence, my presence, whatever, whatever it was, they would ask, well, do you specifically do stand-up? I, I mean, when I saw that you, you because I haven't actually seen you do stand-up yet, but you posted online that you did it. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. And that's like, when I think, again, when I think about when I've seen you in improv, you're so good at, at the verbal part of it, you know, that I was like, oh, I, I can totally see you doing stand-up. Um, yeah, so it, it was kind of the culmination of a couple of years of having joke ideas, putting them in my phone, mm-hmm. revisiting them later, kind of figuring out like, how, what is the funniest way to tell this story? Because I would say most of my stand-up comedy, even though I haven't done it much, I've only done it the one time, actually, mm-hmm. um, even though I didn't have experience, I got like, I thought of it from a performance standpoint also. Mm-hmm. Like, so my acting background really helps. Like, what are... <laughs> What are the ways like where where are the rises and falls in this right. particular text and how would I deliver it? So I think I always kind of create stand up in reverse. Like I think of me performing it and then kind of the writing comes from there. But that totally, I mean, one, like whatever process works for you. But I think because yeah, you may not have a lot of experience with stand up, but you have a ton of experience with performing, acting, comedy, getting laughs, you know. Mm-hmm. So use whatever tools and just apply it, you know. Yeah. Definitely. And it was so much fun the first time. And I think because the first time I did it was a few months ago now already. Mm -hmm. And there was a plan to do it, you know, once a week and 
really hone those skills and really get comfortable with, you know, just the holding a microphone. That was something that I was like, I haven't had to hold a microphone oh, on yeah. stage. And then I was sitting there and I was waiting for my name to get called. And I was like, what if I can't pull the microphone out of the thing? What if I hit myself in the face? Like mm -hmm. on panic attack about like the minutia sure. of the stand-up comedy, not even my content, which I worked right. on, which like I walked into that space and I was like, I'm worried about my content. And then I looked at the microphone and I was like, oh, that's my Everest. Like, that <laughs> Once I get it out of the thing, I'm going to be totally fine. Yeah. Um, it is funny, like the things in those panic moments that you'll focus on. Yeah. You know? That was a big one. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> but I mean, it sounds like it went well though. Yeah, it went well. And I think maybe a lot of my resistance to do it again is as with anything, like the bomb is out there. I'm going to bomb eventually. Mm -hmm. That's just the nature of it. That's the growth of it. And I just assumed that I would have the experience of bombing my first time. And so it went surprisingly when didn't, well. Yeah. When I didn't, they put a lot of pressure. It was kind of like playing Minesweeper. And I had just ah. cleared a whole bunch of blocks. But that just <laughs> brought me closer to a bomb. You know? So yeah. I was like, I'm going to close the browser. I'm going to play solitaire <laughs> for a while. It makes sense, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it, was, it was so fun. And again, one of those feelings that kind of blacked out there for a little bit, browned mm -hmm. out the pictures that my partner took of me doing the set. I looked at them and I was like, I can't even remember doing that. That wasn't intentional. It was, you yeah. know, it was like an outer body experience. And, uh, and I think I was talking to a friend of mine who does burlesque and comparing the fears of doing mm. stand-up comedy and doing burlesque were very similar. Yeah, I can it see is that. You. It is mm -hmm. your perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, if, you know, unless you're one of those people that still jokes, <laughs> then, you know, that's fine. But yeah. like in burlesque, you are bearing a part of yourself that most people don't get to see on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis. And that's how comedy felt. And you're doing it in this very exposed public way. Yeah, like, on a microphone. Jeez Louise. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember just, just a few years ago, and it's not like I've never had this experience before, but um, you were there after DCRT Halloween performance. Amelia, like there's this whole thing where I was like in the lobby writing short stories. Yes, and then Amelia would read the short story like after the show. And I was like writing them about people in the audience. So like one was your brother. Yeah. And, and he um, loves that story. He asked for it immediately. <laughs> Please send that to me. That's cool. Yeah. And it's actually uh, been on another podcast. But, oh, really? But I remember being surprised at how nervous I was just to have Amelia read my story. Because I was like, what if people think it's stupid? And like, I never have that feeling writing or sending it out. But actually being in the audience, seeing the people sitting there. Feedback. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, that's just like a little tiny little piece of what you're talking but your floor is already so high and it's through repetition and through mm -hmm. the grind of what you do how much you write to me like the dedication to the craft that you have your floor is already so high and then from well, there, like your ceiling is also just so high so living in that space of, yeah. of solid writing like we knew but that was but that for me was a little bit of a weird time because that's when I was like, I had not been doing the film thing, but I was just sort of starting to get my feet wet with the short fiction specifically. Mm -hmm. I hadn't published a bunch of stuff at that point. So it was like, I mean, I think I'm good at this because I sort of knew I was good at the film thing. But like with the film thing, it's like, well, I have Corey, my cinematographer, and I have the actors and all these other people who contribute to it. It's not just me. 
having Amelia up there reading something that I had just written and like, I hope it works, you know, and it seemed to, I mean, people seem to like it, but it was, it was more nerve wracking than I expected. In a way, I feel like I can kind of relate to what you're saying about it. Like, I would love to provide a little context around this for, for your listeners because okay. we get to hear you on a weekly basis. But the whole thing we were doing, a DCRT was doing a Halloween show called yeah. Ghost, Ghost Come Out Tonight. And right. it all centered around this ghost story of this killer and then mm-hmm. throughout the play people the, the participants of this you know little camping ground would go vanish they'd get, get murdered right. <laughs> and, um, and then we were trying to think of a fun thing to do pre-show and post-show to involve the community a little bit mm-hmm. more and this idea came up of scotty's a horror writer this is this is his niche he lives in this space right most of the time uh what <laughs> if we pick people from the audience and while we're doing the show, Scotty is outside writing a horror-themed story. About this They are person. the main character, about right. this person involving this person. So, and I remember we did it one night, and you had to do three separate ones. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and, and all Scotty did was while we were selecting them, he came around the corner, he looked at them, and then would kind of nod, and then Went make a note or whatever. And then he with three different people in one night, <laughs> and he, <laughs> And the show had no intermission. It was like an hour-long show. So Scotty right, can count three from top to bottom short stories about our audience members. And then mm-hmm. we had s'mores and we had drinks afterwards. And we sat around the proverbial campfire, which was a prop in our show. And Amelia read these stories. And the audience members were there. Even if the stories weren't around them, he had a full audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can absolutely understand that stress. And just the pressure to not only produce, but to produce quickly. Yeah. That's that's kind of a different animal. If we Maybe I'll... with the assignment, it would have been completely different. But you right. had to trust the work. You had to trust that the work was good right. to be read after. Well, in a way, it was like that's probably the closest I've ever come to improv, mm-hmm. because it really was this like I had no time to do it, yeah. <laughs> and I just had to like bang something out and hope. And I should maybe maybe I'll post a link to I actually recorded. I think it's on YouTube. One of the stories that Amelia read, I have posted somewhere so they were they were great and our audience loved them and they were like are we going to be doing this next week like yeah we are yeah and i ended up having to do it again which was fun it was it was and it was less scary the second time but that first time it was a little scary and that's so funny because i believe the second time you were in a a costume from glow (laughs) yeah that's right (laughs) sitting on stage around this campfire in a full-on liberty bell costume is that correct liberty bell costume with the wig and everything after having just written these terrifying stories and amelia sitting right next to him reading them yeah if you can imagine me as liberty bell from glow (laughs) i'll just leave you with that image (laughs) Um, oh good yeah, that was that was super fun. But yeah, on the so back to stand up. Have you, I wanted to ask you, have you watched on HBO there's this new George Carlin documentary? I have not watched that yet. I I watched it and it was interesting and one thing it made me realize is that I don't actually find George Carlin very funny. Oh, okay. Like he's never been my favorite comedian. And I but it was thought of George Carlin as a comedian and I think maybe like the snippets and the small doses that I get get of him are mm-hmm. all political. And it's, well, and it's so true that it doesn't feel like comedy. That's what I was going to say. So like George Carlin, and this this is my way of segueing because I know we were going to talk a little bit about the history of stand-up. But if you look at like the arc of George Carlin's career, like he started in the early 60s 
is like a typical like Ed Sullivan show comic, like wearing the little suit and tie and like very clean cut, very like safe family comedy. And then he moved into like he he even talked about in the documentary where it was like it was just soul killing to him after a while and this is at this time of the 60s where it's like you know cultural revolution happening yeah and so he walked away from it and reinvented himself as this hippie wordplay comedian which is like i think the best era of george like that's when he was i think the funniest mm-hmm. is like he was playing his like sort of dopey hippie character but then a lot of it was just like observations about the english language and isn't this word weird it's almost very seinfeldy in the way a little bit. And then he reinvented himself again as this angry political comic. And I think that's what a lot of people of our generation know him as. And I'm, I watched that and I was like, yeah, that shit's not funny. It was a lot of it was very true, but it was like, I wasn't laughing at any of it. It's yeah. just like, well, ooh. Too close to home, George. Like, well, too, yeah. Well, it's just him angry yelling. And it got me really thinking about that transition he made. And like, you know, if you compare him to like Richard Pryor, who they, they kind of came up together. I can't remember who said this. And this is obviously a gross oversimplification. But someone I read somewhere was like, there's two types of comedy. I think they were talking sort of about political comedy. They're like, there's two types of political comedy. There's the comedians who are like, let me tell you what's wrong with you or you, the world, you, society. And then the others, let me tell you what's wrong with me. Yeah. And like George Carlin was very much the, let me tell you what's wrong with you. And Richard Pryor was very much the, let me tell you what's wrong with me. Yes. Oh my gosh. And what's so fascinating about watching Pryor from that time period is like, he could tell the most horrific story about his life, about growing up in the brothel, horrible violence, you know, and you're rolling on the floor laughing. Yeah. Like it's, I, I, to this day, don't know how he did it. Yep. And with Carlin, it's like, the, yeah, there's an abrasiveness there that I'm like, I found surprised, I was surprised by how off-putting I found it. Yeah. Um, but it did get me thinking about those like early days of stand-up comedy, you know, where both Richard Pryor and George Carlin started as these clean cut TV comics, you know, and then seeing the transition that they made. So I know you said you've been doing some reading about those early days. I so. have, yeah. Especially when I heard that I was gonna be on this podcast in particular. I was hoping that there was some mm. weird urban legend around <laughs> stand-up comedy or some right. weird conspira- conspiracy theory has that is like evolved from a comedian's joke like did they call something mm-hmm. in advance <laughs> so i did yeah. some digging and then of course like in that in that research you you look up what is the origin of stand-up comedy to begin with mm-hmm. and uh i'm surprised first off that this is something that i didn't already know um and i don't know i mean i think this might actually end up being a longer story than than we have time for <laughs> but um yeah and I'll, i guess i'll just kind of sum it up by saying it's a really amazing thing to see where stand-up comedy is now and Mm -hmm. who like the titular comedians are in like what we consume on a daily basis like who are the comedic voices that we're turning to Mm -hmm. in this time and so many of them are not white (laughs) and it's lovely because you the the history of stand-up comedy is extremely racist Mm -hmm. the foundation of it is a racist one and it's amazing to me, like even just in the last 130 years is kind of where stand-up comedy has existed mm-hmm. and its origins are more or less in the Americas. There are some, you know, like Comedia dell'arte and things in, mm-hmm. in Italy that have also influenced what we now consider to be stand-up comedy. Right. Uh, but it's such a long and complex line to get from where it started to get to where it is now. Mm-hmm. And 
And I think it's something that I was all, already curious about because what space, I'm always curious about what space did people like me occupy in this as it was coming up? Right. A very small one. Yeah. You know? I, would... I, I would say a very small one, but the only one that matters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other day, it's like without the influence of Black people in America, stand up comedy may be, but it would probably be vastly different. Yeah, and it's uh, and I suspect I know what you're talking about. I'm gonna, so I'm gonna propose something because I know I want to have you on again. We talked about this. I'd love that. Can I have you on the next episode and actually give you a full episode to talk about this? And like, and I'll do a story too, but like, we'll okay, do yeah, like right. an actual, like, weirdest thing type episode because <laughs> I really want, I really want to hear, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really want to hear what you've learned about it because it is, it is a history I don't know a lot about. And I am fascinated by it. And I'm fat, you know, as being Jewish, like I know like there's a whole Jewish history of comedy. Maybe that's, I'll find a story about that that I can talk about. And then you can really just lay it out. Yeah. Cause it is like, it's an art form that I feel a weird kinship for. Mm -hmm. And I think it is like one thing about being a horror writer is you're always a little bit like in that space of like pissing people off. Uh people like offending people did you go too far like there's an element of it that like is a natural provocation Mm -hmm. it's you know horror depends on making people uncomfortable and a lot of comedy does too and a lot of stand-up comedy does and sometimes like it's interesting to think about it's and amelia and i've talked about it a little bit on here that idea of going too far in comedy and like is there a line should there be a line and sometimes you don't know the line until the audience tells you yeah have you ever had that experience? It was the very first naughty list um, in that converted curves of gym when mm. we erected a stage. And uh, thank goodness for our designer, Chesapeake. She did a wonderful <laughs> job at transforming what was once a gym into a stage where an audience can sit and enjoy mm-hmm. theater. But uh, I went out and we were playing a round of World's Worst, which is a game that uh, your listeners might recognize from Whose Line Is It Anyway, mm-hmm. where you get examples of the world's worst something, and then each uh, improviser comes out and gives an example of that thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the suggestion was World's Worst Zookeeper. And I came out and I said something to the effect of, Harambe, we have another kid for you. And that was the year mm-hmm. that Harambe got shot. That was mm-hmm. the big gorilla that got shot in the zoo. And wow the audience let me know right away is it like <laughs> pin drop thing and or did you get heckled in the audience like Ooh. nobody said anything the people that laughed i was like okay those are my people <laughs> yeah but most of the audience was disappointed it was like i had mm. betrayed something and yeah. then you know and then you get the support of the people that were like man like that reference like they didn't like it because it was too fresh and i was like well you know that was the very first experience that i had with that and certainly not the last but But i remember feeling that way of like oh thank you for letting me know that that was the line yeah i had no idea but that's so fascinating to me this idea of like and i don't want to get like super political here but like people talk about protests Mm -hmm. and you know people talking about obviously we're in a situation where we were just coming out of like a few like really horrible mass shootings and people are talking about the gun debate and like, you know, I've, I've all sorts of mixed feelings on it. I'm, you know, whatever, but I'm fascinated by one side of the political aisle always does this thing of like, mm, it's inappropriate to talk about this right now. It's insensitive to talk about this. I'm like, when the fuck are we going to talk about it then? Yeah. Like maybe we should talk about this stuff when we're uncomfortable. These are things that should not be safe. Yeah. You know, people talk about this with protest all the time, you know, and it's like, 
protests should upset people. Yes. You know, like that's the point of it. To elicit change. Exactly. So it's like when you talk about this in comedy, and I think about this in horror too, is like, how much do you want your audience to feel safe and how much do you not? You know, is it like, how do you think about that? I mean, I always think of it from how much are they considering their content before they're saying it? And for me, if somebody has filtered the joke in a lot of different ways and has put a spin on it that is surprising, mm-hmm. um, I think sometimes people are just uncomfortable with the element of surprise. And if something is surprising, mm-hmm. then it rubs them the wrong way because, oh, yeah. I wasn't anticipating that. I, I didn't well, think. Comedy is all about surprise. So. Yeah. All about That's a surprise. weird place to be. <laughs> yeah. Even if you're talking about something that everybody goes through, if you're talking about it in a way that everybody can relate to without spinning it in some way, it's probably not going to land. Mm-hmm. And um So for me, I'm always just very curious about how people are talking about it. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some things where it might be irresponsible to talk about it for the sake of talking about it. If you haven't done your research, if you haven't thought it through, if you haven't thought of the audience and how it could affect Mm -hmm. them. And I think like so much of of what's being said right now is not considering the people that are marginalized by the joke that you're making. Um, Punching down, right? I don't think punching down is funny. That's the nature of satire. And for me, I, the good comedians who do it well, I think are the ones that research mm-hmm. and construct, like really mm. rot, like they, that the, they're really pining over the end result of this thing. Right. And they're not taking any of the content for granted. And none of it is, is accidental. Everything is right. very deliberate and well-placed. And I think with that added attention to the work that you do it opens you up to more work that you can do more more stuff Mm. that you have access to um like dumb comics shouldn't be talking about the school shooting right now because they're probably not talking about it in a way that's helping anybody no i just i'm I'm not i don't want to go down this rabbit hole just like louis ck's jokes after parkland were just like come on dude yeah there's i I do think words have a, a power uh, whereas some people want to say that they're just words, um, mm-hmm. words, Lori, um, uh, uh, a playwright that I love that I can't think of the name right now. Mm. Uh, she says that words are spells and mm. the more that things are said, the more that they become true. I, that's um, absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. I think it is something that people should take more seriously. Like, I, I'm not going to tell the whole story because I've told it on here before, but there's my whole breaking up with death metal story with the mm-hmm. fucking the shit of the dead uh, band that really made me like, yeah. <laughs> Just as, back to that phrase as I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to catch up with that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, um, what I remember my reaction to that was at the time was how disappointed I was in myself for being there. Yeah. But also just in this world where it's like that was considered clever. And it's like fucking the shit of the dead. I wasn't even offended because it's, it doesn't, like, what does that even mean? Yeah. But it's like stringing words together just to be shocking that, like, I was like, this is boring. Like, this is just like boring and stupid. And like, yeah. it's not a, I don't feel provoked. It's not a provocation. It's just wasting my time. And like, I feel that way with some comedians where it's just like, you're hitting the hot button controversial thing because you want to get canceled or you want to like claim that you're being canceled. So you're just trying to piss people off. Yes. Like, and it's, it's a strategy. You actually don't have anything to say about this. It's just a matter of like getting attention. 
and being a part of the conversation which maybe you shouldn't be yeah like maybe take a seat like and like it's and sometimes it's like it's not you know this isn't calling for censorship or whatever but it's just like if your perspective is that of like a stupid teenager that wants to like piss off mom and dad yeah you don't deserve my money or attention or praise and like and if you say the thing that offends people and then people get offended and tell you they're offended you can't act all sad that you offended people now you can also hide behind the thing of like it's comedy i was joking which i think a lot of people use the stand-up comedy platform in general to just be Mm -hmm. like i can get away with anything because once i'm up here everybody should know that i'm kidding right well as a kid who was like pretty severely bullied when i was a kid uh, the i was just joking it's just a joke that's the refuge of the bully yeah the idea like you said of like punching down versus punching up and that's why like i think of like richard Pryor, who is to me one of my favorite i'm I'm not like you know hot take richard Pryor was a great comedian you know but like uh what i loved about richard Pryor is like as edgy as he could be and as like dark as he could go he was never punching down I don't think I ever, Mm-mm. and he was always making himself the butt of the joke. And that's how he got you to think about things is putting it on himself. That was just like a skill. So which like stand-up comedians for you are like the gold standard that like you mm-hmm. look at? And... Like there are a few that are just consistently entertaining for me. So uh, Trevor Noah, mm. Trevor Noah is one of my absolute favorites. He's also a wordsmith. Mm-hmm. So watching him construct a joke, yeah, and also just the, the level of capability that he has vocally, mm-hmm. he's just always a good time. I watch him, and I'm like, nailed it. Every day. I feel like Trevor Noah weirdly because I was I like Trevor Noah uh, from the moment he took over the Daily Show, but weirdly there's something that happened during pandemic when he didn't have the audience and he really had to depend on that wordplay. Where it's like I was actually able to notice even more how good he. Is yeah you know. he's he's really great and yeah. i've loved him for such a long time when mm-hmm. i used to work at a comedy club and it was before he blew up it was right before he blew up and i was like we gotta get this guy trevor noah and i remember my boss was like mm-hmm. who's that and i sent him a link and he was like never heard of him and that's kind of it <laughs> and then within the next six months he got the daily show and he I was, was like, huge. see we we had our window we just lost it we'll never be able to afford him again Right. Um, another one that I really enjoy, uh, Michael Che. I think Michael Che also pushes the mm. envelope in a really smart way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he's he's. I think he's really really wonderful. I will say I'm a huge John Mulaney fan because John Mulaney's mm. a writer. Yeah. He's yeah. A comedy writer first, and it shows. It shows. Sometimes I do find his performances a little buttoned up and over rehearsed. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, but he's fun to listen to. Like if mm-hmm. just throw on an album because the words are funny they're meticulous his placement mm-hmm. is good and there's like a level of taste that he brings to the comedy that i really appreciate and another one of my favorites is bo burnham oh yeah he's just so different he's so different so like vastly skilled in many things and he never limits his own capabilities in terms of what he can do and is also just super candid about mental health and how that plays mm-hmm. into being a performer which i think is a huge conversation to have just because we perform does not mean we do not have anxiety it doesn't mean that we don't doubt ourselves it doesn't mean that we 
go to bed feeling like we nailed it on a daily basis. And I think that's kind mm -hmm. of what people think of a performer. No, it's an anxious time. It's hard. Yeah. You, you, like everything that you think about performing, people who don't do it and are afraid of it, we've just found a way to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say that's everybody. I do think that there's some people that are drawn to this and love it every time, but there is always a moment before I go on stage where I think, why do I do this to myself? Mm, yeah. yeah. And then you perform and then you know. Yeah. The answer's always there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Well, I think I do want to have you back on. I, I would love you're... to be back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's let's plan on it and let's 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 really dive into some uh, history of stand-up comedy. I think cool. that would be that would be a great subject. So, all right, guys. Well, thank you, Danielle. Uh, thank you, thank so you listeners. Us, Amelia, we miss you. <laughs> we will have Amelia on hopefully soon. And we've got some other cool guest hosts coming up, but I think uh, next episode, hopefully, will be me and Danielle again. So oh, I'm going to, again, try not to fuck up uh, Amelia's standard sign-off. So uh, stay weird, stay curious, and I will, well, I guess we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. With the finest nonsense we could find Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing